This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Takes a shank. hop off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that. Well, I would like to welcome to the Sub-70 Podcast, let's call him a noted short game guru. I think that sounds good. Maybe instructor. Larry Bobka to the podcast. Uh, Larry, I've been looking forward to doing this. I know uh, we all have some mutual friends, and it's cool we kind of got to meet and um, actually make this happen. So I've been looking forward to this for a while. Uh, I have too. You know, it's it's through, uh, you know, I've known Dave Peglau for a long time through, through working at Titleist and you know, and, and, uh, Kishwaukee's kind of a cool place. And, uh, yeah, it was great to, uh, great to have a drink and chat golf the other day. Well, we got to give the shout out to Kishwaukee National Golf and Polo Club, right? I mean, now we've got the, we got the bar by the pool. We've got the tiki bar is now open. There truly is a cast of characters out there. Um, Kish, Kish National Golf and Polo Club is not a bad spot to be a member at. It's, uh, it's a fun golf course and even better people. So we had a good time hanging out yeah. there. And how yeah, good is our pro cool. out there, right? Like, how proud should we be of him, right? Like, uh, he, he Dave can play. Can, Dave can play, and he's, uh, I'll, yeah. you know, he's taught me how to play golf. So I'm definitely a better player from his instructions. So I'm, uh, I'm a proud member for God. Was it 23 years now out there? So it's been a while. Wow, good for you. I know. I'm getting old, man. Getting old. <laughs> Well, well, let, let's dig into this. Like, uh, it sounds like me, like you haven't had a real job in a while, just kind of like working in our hobby. So how did you get started in golf? You know, where's the journey been and, and, and sort of what's the pathway to, to kind of working with touring professionals and helping their games a little bit? Well, you know, uh, I, I won't go too far back, but my, you know, my dad got me into golf when, when I was, uh, six years old, actually grew up in the Chicagoland area, Um, Norridge, Park Ridge, played high school golf at Maine South, Uh, went on and played some college golf, and then actually was an assistant for a couple years at uh, Rob Roy, which is not there anymore, in Thunderbird, which is now McRae Memorial. Um, And then at 24 got hired by Wilson to uh, design golf clubs and work with tour players. And then it kind of turned into seven years there. And then I helped start UST for five years. And and then some company by the name of Titleist came up and, and hired me for 19 years of travel and fun and working with a bunch of good players. So I've uh, been very fortunate, been very lucky to – to know a lot of really good people and, and have been uh, mentored by a lot of good people from the club design fitting standpoint to the teaching standpoint. So, um, you know, I just, I consider myself part of the, the lucky group. When What years were you at Wilson Golf when you kind of started? Uh, 80, 84 to 91. So that had to be an interesting era of profession, being around professional golfers. Like, can you describe what, like, compared to the guys you know now in their routines, what what the hell was it like to be on tour in 1986 on the PGA Tour? Oh. I'm guessing they had a little bit more fun. The uh, the the mental coach was the bartender, and the weight room is something most <laughs> of the guys avoided. Is that a fair assessment? That That is a very fair assessment. Um, I'll tell you a quick story when, my first month at uh, at Wilson, uh, Wilson always had a big staff dinner around the Western Open. At the time, the Western Open was played at Butler. We were at a hotel across from Butler National, and I worked the event, went home, changed clothes, put on a coat and tie, and, and uh, get in there, and they're like, well, hey, you're sitting at table one. So I'm like, well, I'm either sitting really way up front or I'm sitting way in the back. It's There's, one, there's no in-between at table one. So I walk up to my table and it is, it's uh, Bob Mandrella, who was the legendary iron designer who I worked for and Joe Phillips, who legendary tour rep, uh, vice president of promotion for Wilson. And then the rest of the table 
is Sam Snead, Gene Saracen, Patty Berg, Ken Venturi, and Hale Irwin. Oh, wow. And at, and, and at 24 years old, I was smart enough to go, you know, if I can keep my mouth shut for about three hours, I can probably learn a little bit. And to your point, I mean, the stories of, of you know, clubs and, and playing and, and, I mean, it's nowhere near what goes on right now. I mean, you know, from a technology standpoint, I mean, these guys, these, these players were artists. They learned, they learned by doing. And, um, you know, I, I give you a, a fast forward to last year. I worked with a, a couple of the players who play for Minnesota here on their short game and their putting. And where one day they're, they're hitting some balls on track, man, and they're like, hey, tell me back in the 80s, you know, what kind of numbers did the players have back then with Persimmon Woods and Bellotta? I go, what do you mean numbers? They're like, what were their track man numbers? I'm like, they're not, we're, there was no track man. Just watch the ball. But then how did you, yeah, yeah, how did you fit them? What did you do? And I said, well, you know, you'd get somebody a couple, you know, and we're talking about wood woods and, and steel shafts. And I said, you'd grab a couple drivers, and they'd hit a few drivers on the range that seemed to be pretty good. And they'd take two drivers on the golf course, and they'd play, a down, they'd play downwind holes and into the wind holes and crosswind holes. And the driver that performed the best, that's the one, that's the one that went in the bag. But they're like, but what were the numbers? I'm like, there were no numbers. Yeah. You know, it was, it was ball flight. It yeah. was the ball would tell you. Hitting, yeah, hitting the shots you want to hit. Um, so it, it, it's, it's significantly different. So at that table, when you've got literally living legends there, was Mr. Sneed the uh, Grand Pooh Bar of it? Was it? Did, did Mr. Sarazen tell stories about the Masters? Like, did Mr. Venturi talk about the U.S. Open? Like, and now I'm intrigued on this one. Like, who had the best um, stories? And like, how do you? I mean, that has to be one of the greatest nights of your life. Well, yeah, and it really was. I mean, Sneed would talk. Sneed was talking about most of the time the people that that he took money from because he made, he probably made more money off the golf course off the off tour events than he did anything else. Cause he was, you know, arguably one of the best ever, you know, Saracen was just an absolute gentleman told, you know, I asked him a little bit about making the first sand wedge and, and, you know, where he just, he welded a bunch of stuff on the back of a, a, a mashing niblick and turned it into a sand wedge. Uh, Venturi was great. I mean, uh, I, I was very fortunate that through the years, um, had a great relationship with him, played some golf with him, actually for a period of time, actually had the putter that he won the 64 U.S. Open. Wow. Uh, yeah, he came in one time in my office in, in River Grove, Illinois, and uh, he said, hey, he said, you know, he goes, I know you're working on some stuff, and Maybe this will help you out. And he, and he pulls this thing out, and it's. I go, what's that? And it's got lead tape all over it. Looks like you wouldn't pay five dollars in a barrel for it. And he goes, well, this is the putter I won the open with. I'm like, he goes, I think you should have it for a while. I'm like, I think that's pretty cool. Did you ever go putt with it? Like taking on the golf course I once? Is there any oh, magic in it? Absolutely. absolutely. You know, it was it was an old center shafted. Uh, it was the Iron Master blade, but it was more center shafted. It was like a, I think the, it was a McGregor 3852 or whatever in it. It just, you know, it just set up nice. And, you know, it was the kind of back in the day where you just made sure you just rolled the ball well. So, uh, oh, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm all into that. In fact, the other day at, at work, somebody at second swing, somebody turned in a putter and, I traced it back. It's a, it's an, it's an iron, a McGregor Iron Master from 1932. Oh, I'm like, how cool is yeah, that? I'm, I'm taking, I'm, I'm taking that one home. <laughs> when, when you played golf with Mr. Venturi, because you know he had the wrist problem and had to retire from that, was he right. still damn good? A hell of a like touring pro level player when you got to play with him, even you know past his prime once he retired, was he? Could you still see the talent? Oh yeah, absolutely. Especially from the short game standpoint, 
he he had beautiful touch. I mean, and it was it was back in the day where you know, hey, there was no range finders. Yeah, maybe there was. You know, they had sprinkler heads and they walked off the golf course, but they played much more by their eye than players do now. They don't play to the yardage or the you know the greens book. And he he really, I mean, especially when he got inside a hundred yards, he was absolutely deadly. Yeah, you you could see why he's Ken Venturi still, even though, you know, injury, all the rest of it, you could still see why he was such a oh, great yeah. champion. Absolutely. Who was uh, some of the other guys on the Wilson staff who are current PGA Tour players you worked with, you know, from that era then, and, and what were those guys like to be around, and what was uh, what was sort of the vibe of the equipment? Was everything kind of hand-ground to the blade that they wanted? Like, how did that work back in the day? Yeah, that that was very much that way. I mean, Hale Irwin, Hale, you know, worked with him for years and years. He actually, you know, after Wilson, when I went to UST and then went to Titleist, uh, Fortune Brands bought Cobra, and he was a Cobra staff member. So we, we kind of got reunited, which was really cool. But, yeah, I mean, they had – they it, it was all about the look. It was all about what what they wanted to see – and it was very much about the soul of the golf club, the offset of the golf club that, hey, it had to look this way or I'm going to have trouble playing it. I remember um, a great story about Hale, the, the engineers. Remember when the Ping Zing came out with the big high toe weight yep. and, you know, off the off the machine, it was considered the off Iron Byron is considered the perfect golf club. Well, the some of the engineers at Wilson had made one of those and, you know, they're like, Hey, take this out and have some tour players hit it. Hale looked at it and goes, well, if I have to play this, tell him I quit. <laughs> he goes, and, and I kind of looked at him and I said, well, explain that to me. He goes, Larry, he goes, if I'm standing on the fairway on the 72nd hole of the United States open and I need to hit a five iron on the green, I don't want to look at this. So it's a confidence thing. Right. It might perform better than what I have in the bag, but I don't have any confidence in it. And if I have confidence in it, then I can play golf. So they were very much, they were very much into, into look of the golf club. So at Wilson in those days, you guys would have a certain grind for a hail. And if it was, I'm trying to think who else was a Wilson guy back in those era. Was it like Malpy or they could have a completely other look or like, even though it might be a blade, it's really getting handmade, hand ground, sold, toe shape, all that stuff for each individual player. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like you would have, I mean, you had, you had Hale Irwin, you had Jerry Pate, Tom Kite. Uh, Andy Bean, you know, those were, those were four good players. Keith Fergus. I mean, at the time, there was about 20, when I got to, when I got to Wilson, there was about 20, 20 to 25 guys playing Wilson Irons on the PGA Tour. So there was, there was a lot of different looks, like Jay Haas played him for a while. Well, Jay Haas grew up with Spalding's, very rounded toe look. Tom Kite liked a very square toe. You know they they all played they all played what they liked to look at. Interesting, yeah. It's like they were they were really pieces of art back in those days, weren't they? Of how that club had to look and how each player wants the sole grinded, and you know to talk about customization. Those guys were artists making those clubs back then. Well, yeah. I mean, I I learned a loft and lie with a with a lead hammer. I mean, you know the the days of putting in a machine and bending it with a bar. I mean, we hit it. We hit it with hammers. We took offset out. We put offset in. I mean, I, my shoulder still hurts from those days. <laughs> well, then you're talking back in the day about the drivers too, right? Because like I heard stories. I'm too young for this, but like if you got a good persimmon drivers, those guys may have played that driver for ten years, which is unheard of now. Oh, yeah. Changing, right? But if you found one that worked, you didn't get rid of yep. that thing, right? Like you might have had a driver from 1978 to 1983. And no matter what new wooden driver comes out, you're not changing it. If you found one, you could really dial it and trust. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I remember one year, uh, Keith Fergus, who had, who had played, you know, played for University of Houston, won a few times on tour, 
was playing very well for a couple of years. Well, he comes in for the Western Open, and the airlines broke the shaft on his driver. So he's like, hey, you know, it's an old, it's an old McGregor M75, and, you know, can you reshaft it? And first of all, he hadn't had it refinished in years. I mean, it looked like, again, I wouldn't give you $5 out of the barrel for this club, but he's been playing well, and it's really good. And he goes, I said, you know, what shaft is? He goes, well, it's X100. So, you know, I pulled it, pulled the shaft out, got it out, and now I walk over and I start met I start measuring up the I start measuring up the the first step to the tip of the shaft. Well, it's not an X one hundred. <laughs> I was just gonna say it's I'm not like, an X one hundred, okay. is it? No, it's not an X one hundred. And then I go over to the I go over to the S's, and it's not an S it's not an S three hundred or an S four hundred. It's actually a regular shaft in there. So now I've got the conundrum of do I tell him that it's a regular shaft or do I just match it up? So I match it up, put it back together, take it out to the tournament the next day. He hits it a few times. He goes, it's great. It's perfect. Great. Well, back in the day, True Temper had a truck out there, and there was a guy by the name of Dave Rennie. And Dave was the shaft guy, kind of the shaft guru back then. And I I walked in the truck, and I said, said, Dave, I said, I reshafted. I reshafted Keith Ferguson's driver for him yesterday. He goes, "Hey, did you put a regular in there?" <laughs> so they just lied to him, put but, an X100 sticker on it, and said, "Go ahead, pro. Congratulations." Yeah, but he just no. He had just had it. He had played well with it. Didn't know somebody might have told him that it was X100. There was no shaft band on it, but he played great with it. You know, they just that was back in the day where they just figured it out. Isn't that crazy? A Turing pro could have. An, an R300 old school dynamic old wood shaft and make it work. And make it work. Absolutely. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you a great story about that. You know, in 1986, Wilson signs Payne Stewart to play, basically signed Payne Stewart mostly for the clothing. Cause if you remember, he wore the, he wore the knickers and the mm-hmm. NFL teams in every city they played in. Yep. Well, you know, so he comes in and, they're like, hey, work with Payne, get him into a set of golf clubs. And I said, sure. So I said, Payne, did you bring your clubs that you're playing? No. Do you know what your Do you know what your specs are? No. Well, I said, I know you're playing an old set of Cobra blades. I said, well, why don't we just walk in? We had a huge room we called the cage that had irons and drivers and wedges, and you could walk in there and take a look at different grinds. And so he walks over, he looks at a couple sets, he pulls the he pulls the five iron off he goes this looks pretty good and i said well what would you like me to change he goes no no this this looks good we'll just (laughs) play this and i said okay and they were uncut ungripped and i and i said well you know do you know you're lost in lies he goes no he goes why don't you just cut them the standard length make them standard loft in line put my grip on it and i'll just make them work well, that set won the PGA at Kemper Lakes, and then it won the U.S. Open at Hazeltine. Wow, it's so crazy because you know the two <laughs> pros I work with now, like it's it's down, like it's you know they <clears throat> excuse me dictate to me exactly how it needs to be done, right? Like there's no guessing. Right. Um, it's, right. It's just a different. I can't imagine a player of his magnitude back then saying, "Yeah, okay, it's close. I'll I'll figure it out." Right. But it shows how unprecise the equipment was, right? Those guys had to adapt. He probably did that his whole career, right? Where you just kind of, for the most part, figure it out and make it work and adjust your swing a little bit. And if you found a gamer, that was your gamer. It's it's uh, right. It was just such a different era. I find it fascinating of uh, the art that those guys had to kind of put it together, right? And all that good stuff. Yeah, so well, they, just, they just, you know, they were they were kind of, you know, they were... You know, that was their environment. That's what they had. You know, one more quick story. Uh, Orville Moody, who won the 1969 U.S. Open, the Sarge who played in the Army for years, he came in and we put a set of irons together for him. And he's like, put dynamic regulars in there. I said, Orville, you really want regulars? He goes, Larry, he goes, Every, I could only get in the Army. I could only get regular flex. So I built my golf swing around 
regular flex irons. If you put something in there stiffer, I won't know what to do with them. Think about that. So he just made it work. He could time the swing up and kind of, yeah. yeah. I'm not surprised from that generation, right? I mean, they were so talented, and they right. just they kind of just dug it out of the dirt themselves. And yeah, if totally. that's what he had to play with, that's what he made work. That's old school. Totally. How, how was he? Was yep. he a cool guy, Sarge? He was pretty cool. He was pretty cool. He was he was he was very he was very um, he was kind of quiet, but he had kind of you know I think he reached a level that he never thought he was going to reach. You know, um, it was interesting because uh, Bobby McDonald, who the McDonald family owned Rob Ryan Mount Prospect for years, well, Bobby played with the Sarge in the Army. So I had a little in with him that, you know, somebody that I worked for played golf with him. So he was always, he and I, he and I always got along well. Well, Andy's got the cool record of doing it on the senior tour, winning the U.S. Open and a U.S. Open. That's 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 oh. rare company. It is very rare to do that one twice. Yeah, he's a you know, he was one of those guys when I was a kid on the Champions Tour. He was always an interesting character to watch, right? Very unique golf swing, great personality. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when you went to Titleist, what did you do for what, what was the main part that you did at Titleist when you were there from the Wilson days? Took care of a couple of guys by the name of Tiger Woods and Davis Love and David Duval, some pretty decent players. I, I would have to imagine. So, what was the uh, what was the impression of a young Eldrick when he came to see? Uh, did uh, Did you see what was coming down the pipeline? Yeah, young Eldrick was he. Uh, well, actually, I had started. We had signed Davis first, so I had was in the process of kind of hand building a set of a set of forgings for Davis and then and then Tiger came down the road and um had to jump in with Tiger and I you know I'm kind of you know it's kind of like we talked about at the you know at the Kish is you know it's just like hey what do you want to play what do you want to look at what do you you know they're just like us they're just like any player you know hey what do you want to look at what do you need um I was, I've been fortunate that I've watched a lot of players dig it out of the dirt through the years. So I kind of found, you know, with Tiger, it's like, Hey, gee, you need a little bit more bounce. We need to keep that club moving through. But I have to tell you the first time I ever saw him hit a golf ball, I'm like, I've never seen anybody hit a ball that far in my life. You know, there was some, there were some good players and some long hitters back in the day, but this was, this was a little different. Um, and he was, he was great. He was very much into, into learning a lot about golf equipment. And we tried a few things and, you know, and he, he really was, I, I, I enjoyed working with him for sure. Did he start off like with kind of like a Mizuno blade and you guys had to kind of use that as the template a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. He had a set of he had a set of Mizuno's. He had a two, three, and a four iron that was an MP twenty nine, and then he had MP fourteens um, five through pitching wedge. So he kind of, you know, we looked at that kind of golf club, kind of looked at it, and said, "Hey, what do you like about this? What do you don't like about this? What do I need? You know, what would you what would what would be the perfect set of clubs for you?" And some of that, you know, some of that is like, you know, he kind of looked at it and goes, well, I'd like it to fly like this. Uh, it was really great because he was working with Butch Harmon at the time and, and one of my one of my best friends in the world before he died uh, way too early was Dick Harmon. And so I had a I had a nice relationship with the Harmon family. So working with Butch, I'm like, you know, Butch, what what do you what do you see? What would you like? To see? Well, I'd like to see him hit his irons a little bit flatter. Okay. Well, let's get the center of gravity up in, in the iron. Let's put a little more bounce on it. Let's take some offset off and see what we get. And, you know, made him, you know, pretty good set of golf clubs that he won a couple events with. I, I got to caddy in his group 
at the Western in 94 after he won the USAM. They gave him an exemption, I think, by winning the USAM for yep. that. So I got to see it up close carrying some other guy's bag. And it, it, do you remember the old 10th hole at, at COG, how it was that shortest par four, and everyone would hit a five wood or a three iron out to the right and yep. wedge it on, right? Yep. So I'm caddying out there, and he's got the little old Cobra 200cc silver driver with dynamic gold X100, right, 43 inches. I'm like, where the hell is he aiming? Yep. See, what, you know, I, I've caddied out there for years when the, the tour would come in town and the programs. It was good money to make, and it was fun. But I'm like, I've never – where the hell is he aiming? He put it in the front trap. Right? I watched yeah. this drive with his big high draw. I, I've never seen a touring pro take that on. He damn near drove that green. And I, I watched yeah. him that day, Larry, and I was like, that is something special, right? The talent he had, and you're right, it was crazy long, and he was just really, I mean, but the, the soft touch of, the, of, the, of his chipping and wedges, he was a complete player even before he turned pro, and his distance was insane back then. You know, with an old yeah. professional golf ball and steel head and steel shaft, he still carried it well over 300 yards. You know, yeah, I mean, he came in. I remember one one year he came. He was out in California, and he came into the test site at Titleist. And I said, "Well, hey, what do you want to do today?" He goes, "Well, I don't really want to do anything. Everything's fine in the bag." He was going to his stretch of you know winning pretty much everything he entered, and he goes, "I just want to work on my short game." And I said, "Okay, well, you know, go out there and we can do." It. He goes, "No, no, you got to come with me." So we hit bunker shots for about five hours and all i can tell you uh that's probably five hours more than i hit bunker shots in the last 30 years in my hand he's like where are you going i go tiger my hands hurt i'm done you know you do this for a living i you know i gotta go build you some golf clubs i gotta do something my hands have to work tomorrow but you know put stepping on lies, doing, I mean, hitting it from every conceivable shot. And he just, I mean, along with being incredibly talented, he absolutely worked as hard or harder than anybody ever. Yeah, he's kind of the complete package, right, from the mental side of the golf and and physical and, you know, discipline. And that's that rare breed that, that puts it all together for an extended period of time, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I would say most of the guys have their 10-year run, and they make enough money, and they I'm guessing you would know more about this than I would because you're around the guys more than I would be, but there has to be a level of satisfaction if you've won 12 times, 15 times on tour, got a major or two, that you probably aren't quite as hungry as you were when you were 24 or 25. And I, and, and I right. understand that, right? you got kids, a wife. Yeah, I, I'm good, right? I had a hell of a run. I'm still a great player, but I'm not – putting that to the floor like Tiger did, uh, that's the unique part of it, right, to have that sustained excellence for that long. Right. Yeah, and, you know, and it's interesting because, you know, he spent a lot of time early in his career, and, and one of my best friends in life is Mark O'Mara. You know, I saw Mark a few weeks ago at the at the Senior Open in Omaha, and we were talking and chatting. and But, see, he got, he got a lot of that from Mark because Mark still – Mark's 64 years old and he's still playing a lot of golf still playing on the champions tour still working on it every day you know i think he got a he 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 got a lot of the professionalism from the relationship living close to mark early on in his career mark really helped him become a complete professional golfer that hey if you really want to do this, if you really want to win a lot of tournaments, you've got to you've got to do this and you've got to work hard. And I think that his his mentorship helped a lot. And don't you think Tiger pushed Mark then, especially to win those majors in his forties? Oh yeah, absolutely, Abs- totally. Like totally. I'm not letting this kid beat me all the time, right? Like I'm every bit as good as he is, and I'll prove it. I'll go out and win two of them in one year. Yeah, I'm I'm going to I'm yeah, I'm going to go I'm going to play some really good golf and and uh yeah, I think it really did. I think it helped Mark a lot too and uh you know, and uh Mark is, you know, talk about a guy with a great short game and great great putting stroke and I mean, one arguably one of the best ever. Oh, Hall of Famer, right? 
He was a Hall of Famer. Yep. Um, Double D, David Duvall in that heyday of his run, how good of golf was that that you saw up close? Was he something special for that period of time before he got injured? Uh, probably the best iron player I've ever seen. Arguably really? the best iron player. Yeah, without a doubt. You know, his his little his little kind of shut fade was just he was absolutely perfect. Um, you know, he hit the ball he hit the ball as solid as anybody. Um and he he really played well. I mean, uh, I'll tell you a quick story. We were uh, at Colonial one year and we had just we were bringing out like the 975J or something. Duval and everybody's playing the 975D driver, and so so we had set up at a golf course somewhere in Forest Worth, close the Colonial, to uh, do some testing. And and he's there, and Duval's hitting it, and you know he's launching at about eight, spinning at about 2900. And just hitting it dead straight with, you know, 172 mile an hour ball speed, which back then was a lot of speed. And, you know, one of the engineers goes, well, aren't you going to talk to him? I go, talk to him about what? Well, you know, his launch conditions. He should launch it higher and he should spin it less. I'm like, he's the number one player in the world. Uh, he's only got one way to go. And, oh, by the way, I just walked the practice round with him. And he hit it absolutely perfect. You know, we're not going to change that. But he had he got some unique launch conditions, and I think is is the equipment evolved a little bit. And he did get injured, but I think as he as he changed from Titleist to Nike, now you're talking about golf clubs that maybe didn't perform quite as good for him as his Titleist clubs did. Yeah, so, he was a machine you know, with those things. Yeah, I mean that's the other side of it. When somebody makes a change, you know, can you are you really going to be able to hit the shots that you hit before? It's easier to make the change today, isn't it? I think it I think it is. I think it's easier to make the change today because you have a lot more you have a lot more information. I think sets are built uh, a whole lot better. Uh, you know, threw a set of your irons in today and played pretty well and took them right out of the wrapper and played with them. Um, but built them to what I, what I wanted and you know what, they were perfect and I played good with them. I think it's a lot easier for a player to, to step out and say, Hey, you know what? I want to try this golf club. I want to try that golf club. Well, what are your specs? There's, there's more information. There's more ways to, to measure the golf club, to to make sure it it's it's as perfect a copy as say, you know, their TaylorMade was, and I'm going to Mizuno, mm-hmm. or my Titleist was going to somewhere else. Toughest thing, the golf ball. Yeah, absolutely, for totally. the pros. And, and yeah, for the pros, and that's the you know that's the thing that I I get all the time, especially teaching short game and putting. You know, I'll get some people that I work with, and they're, I'm like, "What golf ball do you play?" Well, the one I, the one my buddy gives me, or the one that I find, or whatever. I said, "How can you do that? This is your spin. This is your feel. This is your touch. Um, it's very difficult to to have a really good short game if you play a different golf ball every time you play." Well, let's talk about working with some pros because uh, our, our our fifth major, as we call it, our hometown event, the uh, John Deere Classic, Lucas Glover, yep. finally coming through. Yep. And I know you're good friends with them, and Pags <laughs> is good friends with them. Yep. So I feel like I'm one yep. connection away. So we were like rooting like hell for Lucas to come through, right? And he gets yep. over the hurdle, and he wins again. And I know you've yep. helped him a lot and worked with him a lot. What yep. What did it take? Is good, you know, he's a great ball striker. And I know we don't have three right. hours here, but like, what did it take to get over that hurdle to win again? And then how satisfying is it for you that you helped him? And I'm sure from talking to him to kind of get back, you know, uh, to the place where he, the quality of player he is, he should be winning. He's that, he's that good. Yeah. You know, I, I started working with him probably 
two and a half, almost three years ago. And actually, the first phone call came from Brad Saxon. So Lucas had just missed the cut somewhere and was was home, was frustrated on a Saturday morning, and he called Brad. And he said, hey, Brad, I, I really need to start working with you on putting. And Brad said, well, I understand, Lucas. I'd love to work with you, but it might be a little bit past me. You know, Larry's living in Jupiter, Florida now. Why don't you go see him? He's got a Quintech. He's got all the information. You know, I think it's really building you a putter and then working on your putting stroke, and I think you should go see him. So Lucas called me about five minutes later after I had the phone call with, with Brad, and we worked together for about four or five hours on Saturday afternoon. And he had just gotten away. I'd known him since college. He had kind of gotten away from being Lucas Glover with the putter. You know, he had, he had struggled so much that he had tried different styles. He's trying different putters. He, he's just kind of lost, you know. So as much as you like to say you help somebody, you teach somebody, but I really just feel like I gave him direction, you know, just gave him a plan to become a better putter again. Or more natural, and like a more natural putter, how he probably put it in more college. More natural putter. Well, yeah, and, and I asked him, I mean, one of the first questions I asked him, I said was, well, whose who's putting game do you want? I said, not whose putting stroke, because you're going to use your putting stroke. I said, whose putting game do you want? He goes, and, and without even thinking, he goes, Brant Snedeker. He goes, I want to be Brant Snedeker. Now, think about it. There's probably one of the most unconventional strokes on the yeah. PGA Tour. Got a short poppy. I said, well, why do you want to be Brant Snedeker? Because every putt he hits looks like it's going in, and it's the right speed. He goes, I want to be that guy. And I said, okay, we're going to make you that guy. And he goes, how are we going to do that? And I said, well, it's going to take a little time. We're not going to do it today. We're going to get you there. And really just basically tried to turn Lucas Glover back into Lucas Glover, be more natural, be more be more reactionary rather mm -hmm. than being static. I mean, if you watch him hit a golf ball, if you watch him hit an iron shot, you watch him hit a driver, he really doesn't ever stop. He really doesn't get ever set except for a fraction of a second before he hits that golf ball. Well, you know, we went, we worked in, we worked in my putting studio down in Jupiter, and then we went and played golf a few days later, and he's like standing over these putts like he's a statue. And I'm like, well, this isn't, you can't do this. There's no way, because you're trying to be somebody else. You know, somebody is, helped you with this or somebody's told you that this is the way to but this isn't how Lucas Glover plays golf you need to be more reactionary you need to be more hey just pick a line stroke it hit it okay if we're having path problems if we're having speed problems we're going to figure that out but you need to start being yourself again and it really I mean it really helped and we just kind of built it back and and the nice thing was we we've been friends for so many years that it was, that it was less, you know, student instructor and more like two guys hanging out, talking about golf and helping him become a better, a better putter again. How so much, how much of, exciting. how it much of really that cool. was, was, was mental of, of, of giving him the confidence and how much was it of working on the actual stroke? And then my, Follow-up to that is, did you actually have to make an equipment change based on his stroke that you saw? It, it was all the above. And I, I go 33, 33, and 33. It was a third of it was the putter was wrong. A third of it was there was some setup and some stroke issues. The other third came after we fixed the putter and we fixed the stroke. Then the confidence had to come back then I had to get him to start believing that he's good and start believing that, you know, at the end of the day, all you can do is strike the ball as solidly as you can at the right speed and just accept the results. 
you know, what what players don't understand, what what any golfer, whether it's a tour player or whether it's the a fifteen handicapper, <coughs> excuse me, they it's the it's the shots you have the least control of. When the ball's in the air, we have control of it. We don't have control of it on the ground. It's rolling over turf, grass, ball marks, spike marks, footprints, what have you. We don't have as much control over it as people like to think so. All you can do is really just strike it as good as you can and hit it the right speed and accept what happens. Talking to him afterwards, what did that win mean? Oh, he was, he was thrilled. It was, it was, it was kind of, it was, it was the total battle back. Um, he was actually, cause he was on, you know, he won and then they take the shuttle over to the British Open and, and my wife, Melissa and I were at our favorite Mexican restaurant here in Chaska, Minnesota. And we had some big old margaritas and we took a picture of them and like, Hey, these are, these are for you. And he's like, Oh man, he goes, Wish I could have one of those. And he goes, have a couple for me. He was thrilled. He was absolutely thrilled. And and I thought the cool part is he had to make a putt to win, and he drained it when he needed it. Yeah. I thought that was like, yeah. all right, he's back, right? Like he needed that up and down and made that five-footer when he needed it for all the marbles. I thought it was awesome. Yeah, he, he uh, you know, uh, one thing that, that touring professionals have and you know you work with some guys and they have a they my phrase for it is intestinal fortitude they have this ability that when when the normal player is going to get scared they have this little dial that they dial up and go well i'm not scared i'm just gonna i'm just gonna do this and he has that he has that in him he is uh I mean, I, I remember a couple of years ago at Medina when he had to play. He was fourth in the tournament. He had to play a good round to get into the first tour championship he had been to in nine years. And, and we were on the putting green, and then we went to the, the practice tee, and he's hitting some balls, and we're just chatting, and we're talking, and you know, and, and – He's he's about ready to walk away, and I said, "Hey, remember what the three most important things are today." And he goes, "I know, speed, speed, and speed." Because all through the week during the practice rounds, I had given him a dissertation about all the great players that had won at Medina and how good of putters they were, and he needed to be a great putter that week, and he really putted extremely well. But he just, you know, he just had that look. He just gets that. You know, they get that they get that look in their eyes like they just don't want to flip and lose, and they just go do it. Like they call it a gamer, right? He's a gamer. Absolutely, totally. Uh, others, I have to ask this story too because when we were talking before, I thought it was just fascinating. You got to spend some time with Mister Nicholas and Gary Nicholas, and, this, and, yep. and watch them putt and and pick Mister Nicholas's brain about putting. Like, what was that experience yep. like of watching? arguably the goat, I don't know, it goes between Tiger and Mr. Nicholas, but one of the two, like to watch that up close and see it. Like how cool was that experience? Well, he just, you know, he was, he was very much into, Hey, this is, this is why I did it. You know, I, I crouched, I kind of got into that crouch and I felt like I wanted my right arm to be kind of a lever and just push the putts down the line. He goes, I never, I never wanted a two way miss with my driver or my five iron, and I never wanted a two-way miss with my putter. I'd rather just hit it straight and push it a little bit than to feel like I'm going to pull it, push it, do whatever. And he goes, that's that's where I felt like I just got into that, into that crouch and putted. And, you know, the most amazing thing to me is that, that nobody, nobody teaches that. Everybody looks at that and goes, well, hey, here's arguably one of the best putters ever, but we're not going to putt that way. Well, why wouldn't we putt that way? You know, let's make it as simple as we possibly can. Um, you know, I was very fortunate to spend, uh, had 27-year friendship with Phil Rogers, who Phil helped Jack a lot through his his tough years with the short game and with the putter. And, 
you know, Jack talked about that. He goes, you know, Phil told me that, hey, you know, we just, we want to hit it solid. We want to hit it solid. Don't worry about anything else other than hitting it solid. And that's the thing that I try to get to, to players is, hey, these guys that are really good, they're really good putters, they get it solid. They might not make everything, but you got to hit solid putts. And and that's, you know, that was probably the biggest thing with, with, with Jack was talking about he just tried so hard to hit everything solidly and to make sure that it was just hit online and hit the right speed. So he, mean, would, he would just use his right hand essentially to sort of push it. The left hand just long for the ride and just sort of push it with his yep, palm essentially? Totally. Yep, totally. That's interesting. Just no left hand release at all, just no breakdown, push it. No. And if he was going to miss no. it, he wasn't going to have a breakdown of the wrist to go left. It was going to be pushed to the right slightly, sort of like when yeah, he saw his ball flight. Yep, same same kind of way. And that, you know, and that kind of – kind of mirrors his game and and you know he just he he rolled it great and and you know it was just it was fun to watch and listen and you know and you're kind of like you know the hard part is you're like trying to tell his son what you think and you know arguably the best player ever standing there and watching going you know and he the really cool thing was you know he I saw him I was working with Lucas about a week or two later after that, and he goes, you know, he goes, I learned a couple things there. I'm like, that's cool. You know, I taught Jack a couple things. Did did Mr. Nicholas let you work with Gary, or would he chime in if he saw some, or was he kind of the dad and let the coach coach, and dad would sit there on the side no. and let you? He let the coach coach. That's cool. He was yeah, just a, he, he was just he, a dad he, at he that was, point. Yeah, he was pretty good. He was pretty good about that. Phil Rogers, I know you knew him for years. Do you think he, re- in his lifetime, realized the influence that he's had on golf club design and short game technique in golf? Of of that lineage traced back to him, of the of the you, yeah boy. It's I mean, he might be the greatest short game guy of all time, right? For on about three levels. Yeah, I I think he did. I think he did. You know, and he learned he learned from. You know, one of the great ones, which was Paul Runyon. And Paul Runyon, if, you know, the, we're going way back. And Paul Runyon in the 20s and 30s and 40s was a very small man and didn't hit it very far and, and won, you know, won some major events and won some tournaments because he had a wonderful short game. And Phil learned from, from Paul Runyon. And uh, I think Phil found out early on and Phil was kind of the same way Phil hit it good but he never hit it he never hit it as far as Nicholas or Weisskopf or any of those guys and he knew that he had to score and he realized how how the short game was that important um and then to to kind of carry it over to to what he did and the, you know the Cobra trusty rusty wedges and and a bunch of things that he did for Cobra um and People, you know, things I learned from him, um, you know, Jeff Brejo's teaching out out in the West Coast, and he learned a ton from Phil. And, and you know, and he's kind of probably maybe one of those underrated, undersung people that industry people know what he did. And other people, you know, a lot of golfers like, well, who is that guy? Well, let me tell you something. That guy, that guy influenced a ton of people. Think, oh yeah, a player. right. Can you imagine that lineage yeah. tree of from I, what I learned from Phil Rogers of how that's gone all the last thirty, forty years to those other players? Oh. I mean, it's got to be crazy, oh. all from him. Yeah, yeah, huge. And and Phil was very Phil was very open um, to to help. I remember one time, oh maybe ten years ago, ten twelve years ago playing golf with him and then the then president of Cobra golf out at the farms in California. And, you know, I'm driving it pretty good. And I probably hit maybe six greens out of the first 12. And, you know, finally I, I hit the next iron shot. And I missed the green and he pulls up in his cart and he goes, son, 
He goes, you might be the worst iron player I've ever seen for a good player in my life. I'm like, oh, great. That's nice. So then the next goal, next goal is a par three with bunkers left, water right. I don't have a chance in heck to knock it on the green because Phil Rogers just told me. I said, right, 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 right. Uh, you know, but after the round, he looked at me and he goes, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm in the office and – Carlsbad, then I'm going to the test site in the afternoon to do a few things. He goes, well, I'm going to be there. He spent three hours with me, and he goes, there is nothing wrong with your golf swing. He goes, you just don't know how to aim. And he spent three hours teaching me how to aim iron shots. So so we think of Phil Rogers as a short game guru. Could he teach the full swing too quite well if need oh, be? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. He knew it all. He knew it all. He knew it all. And, you know, one of the things that one of the things that that I preach and that I learned from Phil is, you know, a lot of players, you know, struggle with their short game. Well, Phil was Phil had it very simple. You know, you're you're you really want to make impact with your wedges with the shaft at 90 degrees, because that's where you're going to hit the ball off the third or fourth groove of your wedge. And you're going to use the full bounce and Mm -hmm. full loft of the golf club. You know, if you put your hands forward, well, now all of a sudden you're, you're going to put that strike maybe a little bit higher and you're introducing the leading edge into the ground. So you really have to think about, do you really want to do that? Or should I just take less loft Mm -hmm. and hit the shot? Mm -hmm. Um, he 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 really boiled it down to the point where you know I'll I'll work with some people in putting now and they'll kind of like well, that's it I'm like yeah that's it that there it's there's no magic here the magic is you take the information I gave you and you go practice you go practice it because that's really the magic the magic is the ability to stand there I mean take the take the Kish's green. To stand there on one of those holes and have a downhill 30-footer breaking left to right and have the ability to see the putt and hit at the right speed. Well, that's just a learned behavior. You know, I can tell you, I can show you the length of stroke I want you to make, but you're the one that has to go do it. And the only way you do that is by practice. Mm-hmm. Feel visualizing the shot, you yeah. know, because we got some pretty fast screens when they're going. You have to almost just you see it, and then just let your body yeah. translate that feel into that that stroke. At least when they really get oh. rolling at our home course, like that's how I have to putt. I just have to try to just feel the the that stroke into the in, into the hole, essentially, right where that putter becomes an extension of just kind of throwing it underhand, rolling it up there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know um, remember about. 10 years ago, I was down in Houston uh, working with Steve Elkington at Champions on some wedges and and uh, spent a couple days down there with him. And Jackie Burke was hanging out with us. And Jackie Burke, you know, said, Larry, I mean, think about this. If I'm pitching horseshoes, you know, I'm taking that. I'm swinging my arm. There's There's no hand rotation left or right. I'm just throwing it straight at that stick to make that horseshoe go as straight as I can. Why would we ever want to put any rotation into our putting stroke? You know, and, and, and you know, and again, here's a, here's another guy that lived and died with the putter and just talks about keeping it as simple as you can and go out and practice. And he, he, he was laughing or walking through the pro shop and, you know, they had, they had Scotty Cameron's and Odyssey's and other putters in there. And he goes, yeah, see all these putters. He goes, I got lots of putters in here. He goes, see that big putting green out there? He goes, how many people are out there practicing? None. He goes, they'd be better off not buying a putter and going out <laughs> and practicing a little more. Yeah. You know, just... and, you know, you, you, you kind of, you know, you sit there and kind of go, well, you know, you want to sell golf equipment, but on the other side of it, you got to buy something, work with it, get it fit, and then go practice. Who's... Bottom line. Who's some of the younger players that, you know, you've seen, you've seen them all at this point. Like, who do you really enjoy watching of this new group coming through that you think, wow, I mean, this player is really something special. Is there two or three guys that you sort of really admire at this point? Um, 
that's a good question. I love Colin Morikawa. Um, you know, won the British Open. Uh, he was a really good college player. Uh, he was he he top fives in more college events by shooting seventy four or seventy five the first round, and then shooting sixty nine, and then shooting sixty five. Uh, he's a gamer. He's a definite gamer. Uh, understands his golf game. Understands what he needs to do. Uh, I really I really liked him. Um, you know, you kind of got to like Jordan Spieth. Jordan Spieth to me is kind of the modern day Seve Ballesteros. You know, I'm going to kind of hit it all over the lot. I'm not going to hit it that great, but if I get a wedge in my putter in my hand, I'm going to get it up and down from 90 yards every time. Uh, so I do, I like, I like Spieth's game. Um, you know, you got, you know, you kind of got to like Rom. Rom's a, you know, he's the big, strong, burly guy that just absolutely smashes it. Um, you know, I think he's learning to get his attitude uh, under control. I saw him play. I saw him play the amateur at Olympia Fields that, that Bryson won. And I watched Rom play one of his matches, and I'm like, wow, this is just, this is some impressive ball striking. Um you know, a little hot and cold with the putter, but I, you know, those three guys, I like those three guys a lot. Yeah. It's cool this year to see speed kind of come back sort of, you know, like you say, he's like a, like a, like a blue collar guy in the sense he kind of chicken wing yeah. slaps the shit out of it all over and he's over in here. Then he's emotional and he yells at his caddy and yells at himself and he, <laughs> you know, hits it onto here and makes a 20 footer and makes a par. Then he goes and birdies the next three, right? Like I think people relate yeah. to his golf game a little bit, right? Like they understand it ain't perfect, yeah. but he's going to get oh, the yeah. damn thing in the hole. That's just what he's going to do. And, and he's going to, he's going to pour out every ounce of energy he has trying. To, and he won't quit. Like well, that's what I love about that guy. Like he's not going to quit. Yeah. Well, Phil always Phil always had it. Phil always had a, a saying. Phil would always say, "Larry, it's a scorecard, not a postcard. There's no pictures. There's no style points. Your only job <laughs> is to put the lowest score, the lowest number in that box on every hole." And you know what? That's what Jordan Spieth does. He puts the lowest score in that box on every hole. And that's, you know, I think too many players, too many good players try to be too perfect. Uh, it's not a game of perfect. It's a game of misses. It's a game of, it's a game of, you know, one day, you know, today you're hitting it good. You feel great. The next morning you wake up and your back's a little sore and your shoulder's a little sore and you don't hit it as good, but you got to figure a way to get it around the golf course. And that's what I like. That's what I like about speech. He seems like he does that like basically every day of his life, right? Like, okay, I'm working yeah. with this today. Yeah. I'm, today, I guess I'm hitting a draw. I don't know. Tomorrow it might be a fade. Uh, we're we're, we're yeah. going with what's working here. I mean, right? It doesn't just. It doesn't seem as precise as like, uh, like a like a like a tiger in his heyday of like just having total flight control. It seems like there's a little bit of. Uh, of Jordan just sort of hanging on for dear life, but he's like you said, you get him inside of a hundred yards and he's got it. Yeah, well, and it's a shame that too many there's you know that a lot of young players never saw Sevy play because Sevy played like that. I mean, Sevy played, Sevy hit it all over the yard. I mean, he hit it everywhere. Hit phenomenal short game, phenomenal putter, and just didn't care and just figured out figured out how to get it done. Tom Kite told me a great story years ago when they were both Ryder Cup captains. Captains, they played a European tour event at Valderrama in Spain, where they were going to play the Ryder Cup in a few months. Kite says Kite said he hit 17 greens in regulation, made one birdie, and shot one under par. He goes, Sevy hit four greens in regulation. <laughs> And shot two under par. He goes, Larry, he goes, I didn't see the guy for half the round because he was in he was in the fairway left, he was in the fairway right, he was uh, he goes, All he did was, was just get it on the green and he would knock it in the hole. You know, and you kind of sit there and you kinda go, Well, that's your style, that's what you do, 
But at the end of the day, it's just about making a score. You know, Seve worked hard. I mean, he worked hard on becoming a better ball striker. I mean, he worked for years with Mac O'Grady trying to be trying to be a better ball striker. But you know, when push came to shove, you know, if if, if I had to, if somebody had to get it up and down for me from a hundred yards to save my life, I, I'm 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 calling Seve Ballesteros every day of the week. And he might, and he might have hit the wedge thirty feet away, and he'd make the thirty footer. What do you think happened with his ball striking though, when it did get worse in like the early nineties and his like forties, late thirties, when it really did decline? And he was trying, he was working his ass off harder than ever. Like, was it was it overanalyzation? Did he have something physically where he wasn't the same as he was young? He was always wild and long, and then he kind of got short and crooked. What, right. What, what sort of? I think his I think his back, you know, he had back problems a, a lot in his career and I think the back problems kind of caught up, but I also think he got he he probably got a little bit too much into into trying to be too perfect, you know, trying to make create the best swing and and hit it, you know, hit it more solid and, you know, at the end of the day, you're you're who you are and you know, it's kind of like Jordan Spieth. Well, Jordan's not hitting it great, but he's hitting it better than he did two years ago. And Jordan just has to hit it good enough. He doesn't have to hit it. He doesn't have to be a great ball striker because his wedge play and his putting so good. Well, you can't you can't lose sight of that. You know, how many players that, you know, have kind of lost sight of their short game, you know, kind of talk about, you know, somebody right now. You know, Ricky Fowler kind of lost that a little yeah. bit too. He's been working so hard on being a better ball striker and hitting it better. You know, he's lost his he's lost his short game and his putting. You know, you you can't forget. You, you know, everybody's got a different DNA. Everybody's got a different golf DNA, and you just have to be who you are. And um, and I think if you if you lose sight of that, that's where I think players start to start to go a little sideways well that's interesting right because like if you like look what the work like think of butch right let's just say he's probably yep. the greatest teacher ever you're t- i'm thinking like the two like you got dj and justin leonard were under the same teacher you couldn't swing any different than those two yet butch kept the dna the no. same and tightened it up right so that's yeah. why i was always wondering with fowler of i liked to swing when he was with butch when it just got a little less droppy in, right? But he didn't right. really fully. Now the swing aesthetically looks better, but is it like better? I mean, it's not proven to be, right? I mean, I think that was kind of his move, right? He kind of had that Sergio move, and then I thought Butch yep. got it a little better, but yep. didn't totally fix it. But he didn't need to be fixed. No, no. Uh, I'm. I remember one time I was, you know, because. Dick Harmon, before he died, was teaching Craig Stadler, Freddie Couples, and Laney Watkins. I mean, talk about three body types and three different golf swings that are totally different. And, you know, I was having dinner with him one time, and I said, Dick, I said, what what do you consider the best characteristic of a great player? You know, is it they drive it well? Is they putt it well? What, what, what is, what is the, the attribute? that you see in great players. And he goes, the ability to repeat under pressure, to repeat what they do under pressure. I mean, think about guys, think about somebody like Bruce Litsky, take it in, come over the top. Uh, you know, other guys that are, you know, Jim Furyk takes it out, drops it in. They just, that's their golf DNA. Right. That's, and if you, if you go away from that, there isn't been too many players that you can think about in history that have changed their golf swing and been as successful after they changed their golf swing. I'm trying to think. Faldo, gosh, who else? Tiger. I don't know if he was any better than he ever was when he was a Butch. Um, yeah, it's a it's a short Faldo list. Had, it's a very short it's a very short list, and there's a much longer list of guys that changed it and ended up. Mm-hmm. ruining their career. Do you think Feldo changed his swing much or just tightened it up? Or, or am I wrong on, you he know, he just the... tightened it up. If you look at, if you look at videos of him before he went to see Ledbetter, yeah. it was about the same. 
it it really wasn't that different. He he tightened it up. He shortened it up a little bit. He got him to be a little bit more repetitive. Um, a little more connected, really right? Did. A little bit more big muscles yeah. turning and just a little less hands and more of a modern swing yep. versus a 1970s golf swing, essentially. Yep. No, I was always Very curious true. on this one, too, and I'll, I'll, I'll get you out of here. I know we've probably already gone over a little the time we're thinking, but this conversation is so fascinating to me. How much, from knowing the Harmon brothers, how much conversation do you think they all had between Dick, Billy, and Butch of the players they all worked with and working together of bouncing ideas? And Dad Dad showed us this. I'm working on this player with this. Dickie, what do you think? How, how much of their inner workings was that little fraternity of brotherhood that they had of helping each other out and ideas and the lineage they, they learned from their dad? Do you think there was a lot of back and forth between those three brothers with the players they had? I think there was, yeah, I do. And I think there was a lot of, I think there was a lot of, you know, a player would, you know, a player maybe was, was out, worked with Dick and then he went out to Oak Hill and, you know, Craig was a pro there for years and worked with Jeff Sluman and some other guys and, you know, play a practice round and stand them where, Hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? I mean, I, I think there was a lot. I, I think there was, uh, there was definitely a fair amount of, of conversation. Hey, I, I got a player doing this or I've seen this or I've seen. Yeah. That, I mean, to me, that's just, that that's what good teachers do. I mean, good teachers are, are really good at, at seeing what, what somebody else is doing. Well, it makes it easier that they're brothers mm-hmm. and they can talk about it a little bit. I mean, I, I, I love watching, you know, and listening to somebody work with another player as far as short game and putting and, and, you know, Hey, what do you, you know, what are you guys working on? What are you thinking about? What are you What are you trying to get your player to do? Um, I think that's how you get better. I mean, that's how you know. Through the years, I've been very fortunate that to be exposed to you know arguably the best players in golf in the last forty years, and arguably the best in the best teachers in the world the last forty years. I mean, heck, if I haven't learned anything, it's my own fault. <laughs> Well, I have learned a lot from this conversation. This has been absolutely fascinating. I knew it would be fun to do, but I want to thank you so much for your insights. I'd love to do this again because it feels like we like we just like scratched the surface of you know the teachers and the players and the lineage and, and how it all connects in this little crazy game of golf, right? It's smaller than we think of of yep. how this influences this and this did this, and it's a fascinating conversation. So. Thank you so much for coming on, you know, the podcast tonight, and I truly enjoyed it. And uh, a fine round of golf today with the sub seventy irons. I appreciate it. If there's anything we can do, let us Thank know. You. But uh, this was really, Thank really you. cool, and, and I'm uh, honored to have you on, sir. Yeah, and I would, I'd absolutely love to do this again. And you know, we can kind of delve into some of the young players that I'm working with, some of the college players, and some of the juniors that I'm working with. I think it would be really really interesting to kind of talk about, you know, kind of the modern players and kind of what the modern players are thinking and doing and uh, because it is different. It's definitely very different. Um, you see it all the time. I mean, you've got customers that are older like me, but you also have a lot of customers that are younger. And I think it, I, I think it's really interesting to, to talk about how the game's kind of evolved and, and um, yeah, would absolutely love to do it again. It's fantastic. Thanks, Larry, so much. I greatly appreciate it. Perfect. Thank you.